Here we go again. The Brit Pack is back. It is Monday, September the 19th, 2016. Simon Head and Shamak Hosandu back behind the mics once again for your weekly dose of MMA chat with a distinctly British accent. This week it is episode number nine. And on this week's show, we take a look back at UFC Fight Night in Hidalgo, Texas, where Michael Johnson and Derek Brunson score quickfire stoppage wins to push their respective championship ambitions. Then we look at the shock news of Charles Sonnen's return to MMA, but not with the UFC. He signs with Bellator MMA. We will discuss that uh, big move later in the show. And then, uh, as a bit of a change, we'll don our matchmaking trousers for the third part of the show, where we offer our respective takes on who each of the UFC's world champions should be facing next. Some of them should be straightforward. Some of them, I expect we might have a few differences of opinion, but we'll have to see. And as we do each and every week, we'll wrap up the show by answering your questions as tweeted to us at the Brit Pack. MMA, Mr. Sandu, it's been it's been a week since we spoke. Uh, I've heard of I've heard a vicious rumor that you're going to go watch Tottenham Hotspur against my beloved Gillingham this week. Is that true? The rumors are true, Simon. I ended up, uh, you know, it's been a while since I've been to the lane. I ended up going to the Sunderland game uh, yesterday on Sunday. And it was good to be there. In a, in, a, in a previous lifetime, I was actually a steward. I used, to, I used to work at the lane for about four years, and I used to steward in the away section. Uh, and I used to be there pretty much for every home game. I was there during the Martin Yole and Harry Redknapp era. Um, so it was good to be back. It was good to see the lads you know, get a performance in and the main thing, get the result. And, and yeah, and uh, like, a, like a London bus, you you wait for we wait for a while and then all of a sudden two come along at once. So I should be going to the midweek Carling Cup game uh, against uh, your beloved Gillingham. Um, so and I think you know if uh, if the rumours are true, Simon, you might be uh, might be popping along to the game. And if, the, if that's the case, we might have to uh, to meet up prior to the to, prior to the match and maybe get a few beers in. Yeah, so it sounds like a plan. I need to I need to see if I can uh, I can negotiate myself out of some. Uh some family stuff on Wednesday night. But if I can, I'm reliably informed that there is a ticket waiting for me. So uh, I know you, you kindly offered offered me a ticket to come and sit with you, but as a Gillingham fan, I, I, there's no way I would last 90 minutes in the Spurs end sit, sitting on my hands for that long. Um, if we got even remotely near the penalty area, I would give the game away. I'd be I'd be out on my ear, no problem. So, <laughs> so, so uh, if I go, I will be I will be firmly ensconced in the uh, in the away end, making plenty of racket with my uh, with my fellow Jills fans. But um, maybe we'll revisit this uh, on next week's show, and you can uh, you can gloat over how many goals you've beaten us by. But it's not a football podcast; it is an MMA podcast, and uh, that's right. We're kind of in the middle of a. Oh, I hesitate to say the word low key, but. It's it's kind of the calm before the storm. We've got a few fight night shows before the next big pay-per-view, which happens on this side of the pond in Manchester at UFC 204. Let's look at what happened last weekend first. Um, just, just a matter of days ago, uh, UFC lightweight contenders Dustin Poirier and uh, Michael the Menace Johnson, who come from rival Florida gyms. That, um, Michael Johnson is from the Black Zillions. Dustin Poirier from American Top Team. They've got a long and storied rivalry down there in Florida. They went head-to-head in the main event at UFC Final in Hidalgo, Texas. And I don't know I don't know who you picked to win that main event beforehand, um, but I, I'll hold my hands up. I had Dustin Poirier winning that fight by, by stoppage. 
And uh, in true Simon Head predicting tradition, it went completely pear shaped for, for for Dustin, and he got he got knocked out by uh, by Michael Johnson. Really impressive performance from him. What did you make of it? Yeah, I'm the same, Simon. I, I had Dustin going in, and uh, it was one of those predictions where how can you pick you know pick against Dustin since losing to McGregor you know a few years back, moving up to lightweight, he just looked like a world beater. And he's just been running through the division, making his way up the ranks. And uh, adversely, Michael Johnson had a pretty poor 2015 back-to-back losses, uh, the most notable being the the decision loss to Nate Diaz last December. And and we haven't seen him since. So it, it was kind of hard to, to kind of gauge what kind of Michael Johnson we'd get. Um, and, and more often than not, you know, the UFC does apply the three strikes and you're out rule. So he had a lot of pressure and his back was definitely against the wall coming into this fight with Poirier but my god did he uh, did he put on a performance you know if that's you know that's definitely one way to kind of shut the naysayers up and uh, shut the critics up and um, re-establish yourself um, by getting a, a main event uh, slot win against uh, a fighter of the caliber of Dustin Poirier by finishing him and um, and I, I think there was a little bit of chatter online about Perhaps could it have been an early stoppage? Um, the co-main event, in my opinion, definitely wasn't. I'm sure we'll get to the co-main event, uh, co-main event uh, in a bit. Uh, but for me, it was a, a perfectly good stoppage. A little bit of controversy with his uh, post-fight celebration, kind of taunting uh, Poirier um, as he was kind of you know getting his you know wits about him from after being knocked out. Uh, but he did apologise about that, and I think it was just the heat of the moment getting to him. And I think just the release of uh, getting back in the win column, but uh, but look, when, when Michael Johnson performs, when he's at his best, you know he he can really compete with the best of them in that in the top ten of that division. Um, I think the key for him now moving forward um, is consistency, is uh, putting on performances like that, you know, two or three times a year. Hopefully, he, if he can get a, a streak put together, um, he's got all the attributes definitely to be a, a, a title contender in the near future. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think. I think his hands are among the best in the division. He's got very, very slick hands, and um, you know, I, I thought that 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 was his best way to uh, to gain a victory. But I thought it would be via sort of sticking and moving his way to a decision. Uh, I didn't see I didn't see him uh, blasting Poirier out there inside a round, but that's what he did. He hit him with a, a absolutely perfect one-two combination. Poirier went down, and uh, yeah, no arguments with the stoppage at all. I thought the stoppage was spot on. I think it was Dan Mugliotta, the referee. Um, I thought he got it spot on, and uh, yeah, you know the the, uh, the celebration we saw afterwards probably not what we needed to see. But you know, this is this is an emotional sport, and sometimes sometimes things happen. Uh, you know, the best the best thing to come out of that was the fact that he apologised straight afterwards. So, um, but yeah, Michael the Menace Johnson, you know, showing that he's still he's still definitely a factor in that 155 pound division. And there's so many good fights in that division, you know. I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing him in there against against someone like Nate Diaz again. I know Nate Diaz is probably going to hold on for Conor McGregor, but um, stylistically, that would be a great rematch. Uh, it'd be a bit of a come down money wise for Diaz, so I doubt we'll ever see it. But um, but yeah, against against any other any other striker in that division, Edson Barboza would be an interesting fight for him as well. I'd like to see that. Um, so I mean, you know, there's a, you know, there's there's, there's definitely options out there for him, um, and uh, you know, as you say, consistency is key. If he can rack up two or three wins against top ten, top ten opposition, 
then uh, he'll be knocking on the door of a title shot um, in what is probably the most crowded division in the UFC. So interesting to see where he goes and also interesting to see what happens with Dustin Poirier next. He's looked fantastic at 155, uh, having moved up from 145. I certainly don't think he should move back down again. I think this is just a a bump in the road for him. He just needs to get back to the drawing board and come again. So uh, looking forward to seeing seeing how he fares on his comeback. Uh, the co-main event, uh, Derek Brunson versus Uriah Hall. It would appear these two don't get on too well. Um, but uh, when when it came to fight night, there was only one winner. It was decisive. Um, but there were calls um, that it was an early stoppage. Uh, you gave us a bit of a hint that you thought it might have been... Talk us through it and tell us why you think that stoppage was early. Yeah, sure. So Brunson clipped him with a, with a left hook as as Uriah Hall was circling to his right, uh, and this has happened before to Uriah Hall. Um, he's been caught in a similar position in previous fights, so it's not the first time that we've seen this happen to him. He goes down, and Brunson jumps on top of him, swarms him, and attempts to give him some ground and pound. So he's trying to land some shots from the mount position. But every single shot just missed. Uh, you had a few that hit air. You had a few that hit the mat. But I think that action and maybe perhaps the initial shot, which kind of rocked Uriah Hall and kind of you know rocked his head back, um, I, I suppose persuaded um, referee Herb Dean to call, call it uh, in that moment. But, uh, and look, you know, I'm sure a referee's job, just like a judge's job, um, being octagon side and cage side, it's a very tough job uh, to do, uh, especially sometimes uh, with the angle you've got. But at the end of the day, the best person with the best seat in the house and whose job it is to try and call it at the best of their ability is a referee. And I think perhaps, you know, with Herb Dean widely regarded as one of the best, if not, you know, up there in the top two or three best referees in MMA, uh, in, this is just my opinion. I, I expected a little more. Uh, I thought he stopped it too early. Um, and I know that this has pretty much divided the MMA community. You've got a, um, a certain fraction, you know, faction of the community that thinks it was a, a, a good stoppage and a, and a certain group that don't. I'm always going to you know, veer towards the side of I'd rather it be an early stoppage rather than a late stoppage. Um, but at the same time, it, it is combat sport. It, it is, it, it, this is a fight game. Um, and just because somebody gets um, punched once doesn't mean the the fight should end you know straight away. Especially when literally the minute the referee stopped the fight, Uriah Hall was standing up on his feet, not wobbling, looking the referee Herbie dead in his eyes, just wondering what the hell he had just done. Um, but again, that's just my opinion. I think it was an early stoppage. But um, in regards to um, how you saw it, Simon, what did you think? Did you think it was an early stoppage, or were you happy with that stoppage? I think it was a, a nats early. I think uh, I think I'd have given I'd have given Hall another another second or two to see if he could improve the position he was in because um, I don't think Hall was finished. Um, I certainly don't think. I think he was in a position where he wasn't at the stage where he wasn't intelligently defending himself. He'd been dazed. He'd been knocked down, and then he was in the process of reacting. And it was when he was reacting that the ref stopped it. I'd have given him another second or so just to to see how his reaction was. Um, I mean, it was a little early. I don't think it was horrendously early. Um, he'd been he'd been uh, he'd been decked quite emphatically by that left hand. Um, 
and uh, it wasn't it wasn't you know it wasn't a case of him being caught off balance. He, he you know he was he was legitimately it was a legitimate concussive knockdown if that makes sense. Um, mm. So I think. I think uh, I'd rather, as you said, I'd rather see an early stoppage than a late one. Um, and I think that one was just a just a touch early. Um, I wouldn't be hauling uh, Herb Dean over the coals for it, though. It wasn't it wasn't horrendous. Um, and uh, obviously Uriah is going to be going to be disappointed. Um, but you know it is what it is. I think you have to. You have to understand when you're stepping in there. You know you are. The referees are looking out for your safety first and foremost. And if sometimes they're a little too careful, you'd rather it was that way round. So um, I think you just chalk it up to experience and come again. Uh, it's 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 a tough break for Uriah Hall because he didn't really get going in the fight at all. Um, but for Derek Brunson, obviously, it's great for him, and he's looking to move up and uh, you know looking looking above him in that weight division. Maybe a fight with someone like Rob Whitaker might be a good idea for him. Um, I know Rob Whitaker. I, I assume they're going to try and put him on that Melbourne card and. I think most people would love to see him in there with someone like Anderson Silva, but if they can't make that fight, and if Brunson is is uh, is a hundred percent healthy after after this weekend, maybe they'll do a quick turnaround and they'll stick him in there uh, with, with with Rob Whitaker. So that's a fight I wouldn't mind seeing a little bit further down the line. But Brunson very quietly is making a making a name for himself in this middleweight division. He, he's, he's stopping people, uh, and all the while you're stopping people, your your you, you know your stock's rising. And the time has come now. If they don't give him Whitaker, they've got to stick him in with a name, um, and then uh, we'll see. We'll see just how good he can be. But uh, yeah, finish maybe just a little bit, a little bit early. So that was that was uh, that was UFC Fight Night in Hidalgo, Texas. Um, obviously, not the biggest and uh, most star-studded UFC show we've uh, we've had in recent weeks. But there has still been some uh, some big news coming from one of the sport's big names this week, uh, Mr. Charles Sonnen, who who was uh, suspended by uh, the Nevada State Athletic Commission about two years ago now for what can best be described as a cocktail of performance-enhancing substances, HGH. Uh, I think EPO was in there. I think there were one or two other substances chucked in there for good measure as well. His uh, his anti-doping suspension is coming to a coming to an end now. And common common wisdom was he was going to rejoin the UFC. Uh, and then we found out this week, Sandu, he's joined Bellator, which completely, completely blindsided me. I did not think that was going to happen. Um, in many ways, it's a perfect fit. Um, I mean, what do you make of it? It's, it's, it's their biggest signing, you could argue. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely floored by the news. I did not see that coming whatsoever. I thought... The Rory McDonald signing a month ago, I thought that was um, a game changer for the promotion. Um, I just couldn't see uh, for at least under six months where the next big signing would, would, would come from. Uh, I'm sure they're still you know, looking for as many free agents as possible. But if you're giving me a list of potential fighters that, the, that Bellator could have signed from the UFC, Chael Sonnen would not have been on that list. I've always just regarded him as being um a ufc guy through and through um he's you know quite openly had a pretty good relationship with dana white um he's kind of been a company man uh in regards to kind of putting the the the, the organization over um obviously he does a lot of good work for espn um which tend to cover the ufc predominantly uh, when they do cover uh, mma 
But uh, but the news broke late on Thursday night that Bellator had signed into a multi-year, uh, multi-fight contract. And absolutely, Simon, this is this is huge. This is massive. We're talking about one of the biggest draws in the history of the sport. He, I mean, if you want to put maybe a top five, top six of draws in the sport, you've got your GSPs there, your Anderson Silvers, your Ronda Rouseys, your Conor McGregor's, Nick and Nate Diaz. You've got to put Chael Sonnen right up there. Um, if it wasn't for Chael Sonnen, I don't think Anderson Silva would have been would have been you know making the money that he made uh, during their rivalry in that patch. He really helped elevate Anderson Silva to a much higher level in regards to getting wide mainstream appeal and getting more eyeballs on their particular rivalry, and hence thereafter getting more eyeballs on, on Anderson Silva. But as you said, Simon, he's come off this two-year suspension. They uh, they held a, a media-only a press conference on uh, on Friday, which which I was a part of. Um, and there was some, you know, I mean, Chael, Chael was being Chael, Simon. He was, uh, you know, I think he had some good material planned. He said he's going to Bellator because he wanted to go on, on a Legends ass-kicking tour. And uh, and on his list were the likes of T.O. Ortiz, Fedor Emelianenko, uh, Vandalay Silva. And, uh, and to be honest with you, I don't mind it. I really don't. I think it's a good fit. I think it's good for Chael. It's definitely good for Bellator. Um, I think they've got some fights there that uh, they could make for him that he could win. Um, you know, and and again, if they can use somebody like Chael Sonnen, um, who can obviously main event a card, and then just stack that main card with the likes of an MVP and AJ McKee and some of the, the homegrown talent that they're trying to kind of nurture and bring up the ranks, then uh, this could be a home run. And I think this, again, you know, coinciding with the Rory McDonald signing just a few weeks ago is going to make a lot of fighters think about their contract situation um, and kind of, you know, really pick more, um, pay more attention to what Bellator is doing. Because if they're able to sign a Chael Sonnen, then I think all bets are off on who they are capable of signing. Yeah, it, it's arguable that there are actually more good fights for Chael Sonnen in Bellator than there are in the UFC. Because Chael, Chael's kind of been passed by now. The division is much younger in the UFC. They've got this new this new breed of fighter coming through. And while he can draw, he's basically going to be he's going to be the uh, sort of the old the older statesman, you know, the gatekeeper whereas here in Bellator, he can really go after some of these these character-led fights, you know, and he's created his own weight division already. He's going to fight a gangster weight, is what he said. So, you know, he's, it basically means he's going to fight anybody from middleweight to heavyweight, by the sound of it. Uh, he doesn't mind having a tear-up with Rory McDonald. Obviously, wants Vanderlei. He's always wanted to fight Vanderlei. Tito is the one who he seems to be waxing lyrical about at the moment, which makes me think that that's the most likely first first one for him. And, yeah, that would uh, be the, uh, the the bad boy versus the bad guy. That's how they've pitched it so far. There you go. And uh, the thought of Chael Sonnen versus Fedor Emelianenko just boggles the mind. I can't. I can't even begin to comprehend what that might look like. Um, but there are, you know, these these are fights that people will tune into. And if you're a if you're a hardcore MMA fan who's been following the sport for for any length of time, when Chael Sonnen is involved in a in a in any kind of fight promotion. Um, he's he's must see TV. He's great to watch. You say about him being a you know one of the top draws um, in the sport. The way I would describe him, he's probably the best the best uh, antagonist or the best opponent 
um, in 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 the UFC or as was in the UFC because it, he was never the main guy. He was always the second guy in the equation. So you had Anderson Silva, but then you had Chael Sonnen, and Sonnen was the guy who elevated him. Um, and uh, that always seemed to be the case. You know, he he was obviously his own character, and uh, like like to be the bad guy, you know, and be chief chief antagonist, if you like. Um, and that seemed to be how how his role worked. He was never really the number one guy. He was always the number two guy. But by being such a strong number two guy, it lifted the fight each time. And uh, I think I think that's what we'll see in Bellator. I think he will do a fantastic job of promoting the promoting the fights. And the other thing that hasn't really been discussed is whether he might also be brought in on the broadcast side when he isn't competing. That would seem to me to make complete sense as well. You mentioned about his relationship with the UFC. The UFC, of course, binned him off. Um, he was part of the Fox team, and uh, the UFC and Fox uh, dropped him like a bad habit after the uh, after the failed drug test. So, um, so he was he was then basically chucked off for Fox and ended up joining ESPN, where I believe he still works as an analyst. So, um, maybe maybe he might even step across and do a bit of. Do a bit of TV work for Bellator. Um, I think he will. I think he will, Simon. I think I, I remember on the conference call he mentioned that he was essentially all in on on Bellator and on Spike. Um, so he's going to jump on as many opportunities as they're prepared to give him, and I'm sure they're going to roll out the red carpet and try and get him on on as many broadcasts as possible, on as many social media you know, pieces of video content as possible. Um, yeah, so he's definitely going to. Um, be utilized as to the maximum potential that they can. And, and a point about the, the drug testing, um, there was one uh, quote that he provided with regards, or I suppose one tidbit in regards to a stipulation in his contract. Um, he said that if he um, tests positive for any drug test under Bellator, not only will he be fined one or not only will 100% of his purse um, be withdrawn, but he'll be fined $500,000. And for those that perhaps say Bellator don't do uh, independent drug testing or the program isn't as good as USADA, I think Scott Coker's message is, look, you know, basically what Dana White's message used to be back in the day is, hey, we're, we're regulated by the government. You know, we're regulated by the state athletic commissions. Now, obviously, the times have changed with what the UFC have done with USADA. So the benchmark and the, the industry standard of drug testing in MMA is a lot higher than what it used to be. Um, but Chael Sonnen did say that he's he's pushing to fight in California, um, which, um, which, you know, up there with perhaps Nevada is probably uh, the, the, the best regulated state uh, in MMA or at, in combat sports altogether. Um uh, with their kind of uh, head, Andy Foster, being notoriously ruthless and actually in the past has brought in USADA and WADA to do um, the testing on behalf of the commission at fights. Um, but he was willing to share that information to the media, as, I suppose, in a way to say, hey, look, perhaps I might not be tested you know, by USADA and I'm not going to be in the USADA testing pool, but I suppose this is as good as me getting a massive fine if I do anything wrong in my tenure under Bellator. Yeah, I think uh, they are, they're they basically operating under the old UFC 
drug testing rules, if that makes any kind of sense. They, they you know, they're going by the athletic commissions, aren't they? So, um, but I think putting that in place, that's kind of a, that's kind of a statement, really, just to say, you know, w- you know, we're aware of this. We are, you know, we're we're drawing a line in the sand here, and uh, you know, we aren't just turning a blind eye to this stuff. So, but it'd be really interesting to see uh, just just how successful this is, and whether Chow can really elevate. Uh, the sort of pay-per-view level of these Bellator shows. Because obviously Bellator are still relatively young in terms of uh, the Scott Coker era. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're building, they're growing, they're adding to their roster. And uh, they're beginning to add some names. You know, we've got Benson Henderson, Matt Mitrione. Uh, and now we've got Rory McDonald. And now we've got Charles Sonnen. Um, and uh, all in their own individual way, they just help help raise the bar both in terms of awareness and in terms of uh, in terms of legitimacy as well so um, and I think <clears throat> no one will do a better sales job for Bellator than, than Charles Sonnen so uh, really looking forward to seeing how how big his involvement is within the promotion side of things and uh, also how he's going to fare when he actually steps into the Bellator cage and fights it's been two years uh, mm. to, and, and to be away from the sport for that long um, you know, we, we just don't know. I think he's 41 years of age. So, um, it, isn't it interesting, Simon, how many fighters, um, we, we, we're either going to or have analyzed, um, with regards to coming off long layoffs. I mean, uh, in the last couple of years, we've had to analyze Anderson Silva coming off that horrendous injury. Ronda Rousey's coming up to a year and change. GSP, if he's going to come back, we're looking at what a good few years, up to three years away. And and now Chel Sonnen, um, you know, like you mentioned, has already been out of the game for two years. Um, he had a, a grappling contest with Michael Bisping for your fight um, earlier on in the year, um, and I'm sure he's been trying to keep as uh, at, you know, as best in shape as he possibly can. But nothing can obviously replace full-on MMA training in a camp, and nothing can replicate an actual fight. So so you're right, Simon. It'll be interesting to see how a 39-year-old Chel Sonnen looks in uh, in 2016 or if he fights next year, 2017. Yeah, really interesting to see where he goes. He's 39, is he? Yeah. Ah, right. I've aged him by two years. I apologise, Chow. Um, so, <laughs> so we'll move on to the next, the next, uh, the next section. And this is this is kind of a bit different because we've got slightly less uh, topical stuff to really talk about this week. We thought we'd chuck in a little bit of fantasy matchmaking, which uh, everyone loves to play matchmaker and. Uh, what we thought we'd do is we'll take a look at the world championship picture across every weight class of the UFC. This week we had it announced the world to weight championship will be defended at UFC 205 in New York City at Madison Square Garden. Tyron Woodley will defend against Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, which personally I'm absolutely absolutely delighted about. That's the fight that I thought should have been made, and I was a I was a bit disappointed when Tyron started throwing around names like Nick Diaz and and GSP, but it's going to be Wonder Boy versus Woodley, which is going to be great. So that so we now know who's going to be uh, battling for that 170 pound title. But there's 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 a couple of title fights that we know are going to happen. Obviously, we know Michael Bisbee is set to face Dan Henderson. But let's run through the divisions and uh, offer up who we want to see uh, defend. Or sorry, who we want to see challenging for the title next in each way. Before we begin, Sai, yeah. question, because we haven't discussed this off-air, so 
this is the first opportunity I'm getting to speak to you about this. Mm. Are we going to do this based on meritocracy or are we doing this based on the fact that if we're the UFC, what would be the biggest money fight we could put on in that division for the champion? You're the matchmaker, mate. Make whatever one you want to see. Make All right. <laughs> make, make whatever one you want to see. And that's that's where we might differ because okay. you know right. we may have slightly different uh, approaches to to uh, specific championships. So so if we we'll start from the lowest weight class and work our work our way all the way up to the biggest. So we'll start with the women's strawweight division. Yoanni okay. and Jacek, who who would you put her in with next? I actually like the um the the fight with Karolina Kowalkiewicz. I think uh it's got everything both meritocracy and I think it's the money fight. I think with regards to meritocracy, she's obviously, you know, worked her way up got the right victories under her belt and in regards to the kind of the storyline the angle both of them being polish um i know that our media colleagues in the u.s have mentioned the fact that perhaps you could put this on the day before uh ufc 205 um uh, on a fight night card uh, perhaps um in one of the the smaller uh, new york uh, arenas where that day would actually be polish day uh, in new york and i know that you me in the past have said well look you could put that fight on uh, you know, anywhere in Europe, um, maybe in Poland, um, maybe anywhere else in Europe that uh, you know that has a large Polish contingent, and it'll be easy for Polish fans to get to. Um, so I think you know, put your meritocracy and you put everything in regards to a really good storyline uh, in the bag, uh, and you'll be hard pressed to kind of move me away from the idea of having Jana Janjacek versus Karolina Kowalkiewicz. And who does the one I hear? Mike Goldberg pronounce and announce that right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cruel. If if it was a fight night show, it'd probably be John Anik, wouldn't it? That's um, true. If it, if if it's in the states, and he's actually really good at announcing and uh, pronouncing. I think is it, doesn't he have some sort of um, like audio link for all of the UFC staff where he's essentially recorded um, the enunciation and the pronunciation of every UFC fighter, so everybody has it on file. I believe so. I think if you go on the UFC website, I don't know if they still have it. They certainly used to have it. They used to have the fighter saying their own name in audio. Each oh, okay. fighter had their own profile page. Um, and uh, on some of them, at least, there used to be a button you could click and the fighter would actually say their name so that you knew how to pronounce them properly. So I don't know. I, I assume John has either taken that and expanded on it or has gone and uh, compiled his own. But, yeah, he, he he's the king of pronunciation for sure. When, when it comes to that stuff, he, he, uh, he makes sure he gets his prep done. I totally agree with you when it comes to the women's strawweight division. I think, obviously, Claudia Gadella is, is still the number one contender, uh, based on the rankings, at least. But, you know, Joanna has, has fought her twice and beaten her twice now. Uh, Carolina's next in line in terms of rankings. Uh, in terms of recent performances, I think she's probably top of the pile. Uh, I'm interested to see how Jessica Andrade does, um, mm. because she seems to be the next the next rising star of the division. I would put her in with Claudia Gadella just to see how she gets on. I think that would be an absolute belter of a matchup. Um, but in terms of the title fight, Poland versus Poland, Joanny and Jacek versus, versus Karolina Kowalkiewicz, definitely that would be my fight. We'll move up to the women's bantamweight division. And uh, Amanda Nunes, she, uh, she, she took... Uh, Misha Tate to the cleaners at UFC 200 in the main event that'll be a quiz question for a few years down the line who was the main event at UFC 200 it was Amanda Nunes versus Misha Tate she won that fight decisively 
by submission, but it was her strikes that really, really got the job done and helped get the fight uh, to the mat where she was able to lock up that fight winning choke. Um, who does she fight next? I know who I've got down on my list, but who have you got? Well, seeing as you let me uh, pick the, um, the 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 women's strawweight uh, matchup first, I'll let you have the bantamweight fight first. So I go for it. All right, let's 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 alternate then. So I'm I'm going for Ronda Rousey. I'm going for Ronda Rousey. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, I'm nothing if not predictable. But the the reason why I'm going for Ronda Rousey is because you ha- if she's coming back, then this has to be the fight. You, there's no point bringing her back for a non-title fight. If you bring her back, you put her in a title fight, and if she gets the title back, all hell breaks loose, and you've got Rousey, Rousey Mania hits again. And then you've got all sorts of options. Misha Tate could fight her again. Holly Holm could fight her again. Juliana Pena hasn't got much love for Ronda Rousey. That fight could happen. So, so that would be that would be my that would be my fight. I know if you're if you're taking her out of the equation, then maybe Juliana Pena has got a very strong shout. Um, but I just think that right now, if Ronda's coming back, you've got to put her back in there um, in, a, in a in a world in a world title fight. Um, and it's it, really it's a coin flip whether you back her or not to beat Amanda Nunes. I think Amanda Nunes looked like an absolute star against Misha Tate, um, but she's very aggressive, and that that is exactly what Ronda Rousey wants. She wants you to be aggressive. She wants you to to come plowing forward so that she can use your momentum against you. So that would be a really interesting fight to watch from a stylistic point of view as well, and. You know, we talked about Charles Sun and how does he come back after after two years away? Ronda Rousey's been out for a year, um, and um, you know it isn't it isn't just the uh, it isn't just the physical issue of being out of action for a year when it comes to Ronda. It's the mental side of it as well because she her last outing was was an absolute crushing defeat for her. So how will she come back? There's so many unanswered questions when it comes to Ronda. She's kept herself well out of the public eye. Uh, all hell will break loose when uh, when when that fight, if that fight gets announced, um, I wouldn't be wouldn't be at all surprised if that was either the main event or the co-main event of UFC 207 um, on December 30th in Las Vegas. And if it is, it's going to be it's going to be absolutely incredible. Um, and uh, then we'll see who the biggest star in the UFC is. Is Ronda Rousey not only returning to get her title back, is she also going to reclaim? her spot as the UFC's number one superstar, knocking off Conor McGregor in the process. Uh, that'll be an interesting side note when the, when the pay-per-view numbers come back. But that's the fight I'd make anyway. Amanda Nunes, Ronda Rousey, what about you? Yeah, mate, bang on. Um, it, it, it could be anyone in the women's bantamweight division that's the champion. It could be Holly Holm, you should take Amanda Nunes. It could be anyone. The biggest fight you could put on, the money fight, but also meritocracy as well. Again, we're talking about who deserves a title shot. Ronda Rousey was undefeated before she got beat for the title. You know, she's she's been off for about a year now, um, but she's still got the if one of one of the best, if not the best, record in the women's bantamweight division in the UFC. And you know, we talked about you know draws earlier on. She's probably arguably in the top two of the biggest draws uh, the UFC have ever had, or certainly have in their current roster. She's right up there with the the notorious Conor McGregor. So 100%, you know, Ronda Rousey's return is going to be big blockbuster business. So, you know, with with the, the UFC uh, Women's Bantamweight Championship essentially being 
you know, one of one of the hot potatoes of uh, of the UFC championship belts uh, in the overall company. You know, the heavyweight division being the other, in, you know, since its inception, really. Um, you'd be hard pressed to not uh, grant Ronda Rousey uh, a rematch, or well, not really a rematch, but a title shot uh, upon her return. Uh, it'll be big business. She 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 earns it. She deserves it. And um, you know that'll be a hell of a fight. I mean, it'll be good to uh, obviously gauge exactly where she's where she is now, having spent a year out of the game. Has she improved her boxing? Has she improved her overall strategy? What does she look like? These are all unknowns at the moment. But uh, a Ronda Rousey return will definitely not only get the interest of the hardcore MMA community, but 100%, like every Ronda Rousey fight, get the mainstream attracted as well. Definitely. And will Edmund Tarverdian scream in her face like he did with Travis oh Brown uh, a couple of weeks ago? That was that was just nuts. The whole thing was just was just ridiculous. Let's move up to uh, the flyweight division, 125 pounds. The single most dominant champion in the UFC today, the pound for pound number one, Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson, um, is in serious danger of... Uh, basically fighting himself out of a job as a flyweight champion because there's barely anybody left. Um, who does he fight next? Obviously, well, I say who does he fight next? We know he's going to fight the winner of the Ultimate Fighter. Let's assume uh, that he gets through that unscathed. Who does he fight next, Sandy? Well, this is interesting because um, TJ Dillashaw, who currently isn't a flyweight, he's a, he's a bantamweight fighter. He came out in an interview, and I can't remember for the life of me which outlet it was. Um, I think it was yesterday, and said that he'd be willing to drop down to flyweight to fight Demetrius Johnson for the championship. And I think looking at the the top fifteen, I'm looking at names that DJ has either already beaten once or beaten twice. I think TJ Dillashaw and Demetrius Johnson, you know, that would be a, an amazing stylistic fight. And uh, and that's my pick. I I, I think that's a, that's a sellable fight, uh, or as sellable as a fight you, as you're gonna get um, for Demetrius Johnson at 125 pounds. That is one hell of a pick, because uh, I hadn't seen that story. So that one came completely out of left field. That's way better than anything I could have come up with. So so I'm I'm, ha- <laughs> I'm I'm happy to go along with that. Just for just just for uh, sort of formality's sake, I was gonna say. And it, it, it would be a rematch. It would have to be a rematch because he's beaten everyone in that division. Um, given the winner of Cejudo versus Benavidez, I will put those two against each other. Um, and obviously, I think I think we're going to see those two against each other. And uh, if he fights Cejudo again, he gets the double. If he fights Benavidez again, he wins him. He beats him three times, and I assume he gets to keep him at that point. So, you know, it's um, it's it's going to be it's really he needs he needs he needs new challenges and he either needs to move up a weight class or someone needs to come come into the weight class and challenge him and uh if tj Dillashaw can make 125 pounds then make that fight tomorrow i think i think that 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 is absolutely absolutely the best possible fight uh that they could do for him now one of the divisions or sorry the next division up is bantamweight which is a division that ironically i think demetrius may need to move to eventually um to uh, to seek further further fortune and fame if you like the the current champion is mr dominic cruz um who uh, reclaimed his title after a horrendous run of injuries uh, beating tj dillashaw by by a very very close split decision the big question now is 
who does he fight next? Um, and uh, I'm torn on this. I've kind of got an either or, and I, I'm going to have to come to some sort of decision on this because I've got TJ Dillashaw down as one of my answers, and the mm-hmm. other one is Cody Garbrandt. And interesting. The question, the question is, which fight is going to be is is going to make the most sense for right now? And I think the the one that makes most sense for right now is probably Cody Garbrandt um, because. He's 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 the guy with the buzz. He's the hot hand right now. Um, he's following in Cruz's footsteps. They both uh, basically got their shot at the title by uh, destroying Takeo Mizugaki. Uh, Cruz did it on his comeback fight when he came back from injury, uh, blew Mizugaki away, and then obviously uh, booked himself in that title fight with with Dillashaw. Uh, Garbrandt. Uh, I don't know whether it was Garbrandt who asked for that fight or whether it was just the UFC matchmakers doing a bit of clever positioning. Uh, he then basically followed in Cruz's footsteps, took on Takeo Mizugaki and uh, did an even better job of putting him away. That now tees that fight up perfectly. The pair of them are already jawing at each other over social media, during interviews, uh, backstage at UFC events. You know, the buzz is already there. The rivalry is already brewing. I think you strike while the iron's hot. Make that fight. There is a suggestion that maybe Cody could do with another one or two fights just to give him a little bit more seasoning before you sling him in there with such a such a decorated, experienced guy like Dominic Cruz. But to be honest with you, he's on such such a red-hot streak of form. i just put him straight in there and see how he goes. Um, if he does lose to Dominic Cruz, I don't think it'll be that damaging for his career. Um, so I think he could certainly rebound from a defeat and, and come back and become a champion further down the line. But I'd put him in there and give him a go. Give Cody Garbrandt the shot. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, Simon. I mean, I suppose there's a few options you got there. If you went Dominic Cruz, TJ Dillashaw 2, then I suppose as a, as a solid co-main event, or at least a, a fight on the main card, you'd have maybe Cody Garbrandt versus Brian Caraway. Uh, Caraway has been streaking. He's ranked number three at the moment. Well, he's actually ranked ahead of Cody Garbrandt, uh, according to the official rankings. Um, and in terms of a matchmaker, if if you want to try and put some steam behind Cody Garbrandt, uh, the Brian Caraway fight is is a fight he could win, and you know is a fight that he could probably win with style points too. But having said that, I want to just throw an alternative in there because I think this is going to be a fight that we're going to see somewhere down the road eventually, anyway. Frankie Edgar, former UFC lightweight champion, used to compete at 155 pounds at essentially his walk-around weight. He then dropped to 145 pounds, but it's not the most strenuous cut. He believes he could make bantamweight and make bantamweight quite comfortably. So just to be different, why not put in Frankie Edgar versus Dominic Cruz? You've got two very well-established names that have been around the UFC for a long time. You've got a current champion and a for- former champion. It's a fresh matchup. Um, you know, Frank Edgar, one of the best lightweights we've ever had. He's essentially the best featherweight not named Jose Aldo and Conor McGregor. Um, so, yeah, so just to be different, I'll throw Frankie Edgar in the mix versus Dominic Cruz. In this age of weight cutting, you're making all these guys cut extra weight. You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> but, but having said that, having said that, I think I think Frankie Edgar, when when he does finally hang his gloves up, um, he's for me going to go down as a as a absolute A grade Hall of Famer. Uh, I think he's 
he epitomizes everything that's great about the sport of mixed martial arts yeah. and uh I think he deserves to become a two-weight world champion one day. I honestly thought he would he would do that um, by winning by winning the featherweight title. Um, it just he didn't did. quite go his way. Um, but at bantamweight, who knows? Um, I think stylistically, uh, Frankie Edgar versus TJ Dillashaw would be an outstanding fight. I would love to see that one day. Um, but Frankie Edgar versus Dominic Cruz for the gold, absolutely sign me up. I'd love that. Um, I think the only thing that might maybe put that idea on hold a little bit is that you do have uh, two or three guys who are either in championship contention or just below. So if Frankie jumps in, given that he's not jumping in as a world champion, he might have to earn his keep at 135, win at least one fight before they stick him in uh, for for a world championship fight. Um, but yeah, Frankie at 135, I like the sound of that. Provided he can make the weight uh, healthily and uh, he feels good walking around at 135 uh, on weighing day, then uh, yeah, yeah, by all means, let's do it. Let's drop TJ Dillashaw down to 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 uh, flyweight and we'll drop Frankie Edgar down to, to bantamweight. We've got some exciting new matchups coming. So, uh, so I've gone for Garbrandt, you've gone for Frankie Edgar at bantamweight. So let's move up to featherweight. Personally, I think this is pretty cut and dried. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Conor McGregor has got the undisputed title right now. It's looking incredibly unlikely that we're ever going to see him defend that belt. Uh, so we'll work on the basis that he isn't. And okay. we'll work on the basis that Jose Aldo is the interim champion who may eventually be upgraded to the full championship. But we'll work on the basis of it being Jose. Um, his next fight... Um, who should it be? Again, you know, the featherweight division has got a few very strong contenders in there. Uh, for me, there is only one person they can put in there. He's, he's earned his keep. He's done the job. He's, he's, uh, he's becoming a real, a real star in that 145-pound division. And I still don't think he gets the credit he deserves. I'd give Max Holloway the shot. And if he can beat Jose Aldo, then uh, people really need to start making some noise about this guy. I think he's a star. Um, I think he deserves his shot. What about you? 100%, Simon. I mean, the guys, he's put in his shift. He, he's got this amazing win streak put together. Ever since he lost that decision to Conor McGregor, he just looked better and better. He's uh, he's essentially got Hawaii on his back um, ever since, you know, BJ Penn uh, kind of you know, went off the radar. But, you know, he's coming back as well, which is just another crazy story in itself. But essentially, in terms of, the next generation of, of Hawaiian fighters coming through. Max Holloway is leading that pack and leading it by example. I mean, if he doesn't get the next crack at Jose Aldo, if Conor McGregor um, drops the championship in favor of moving to lightweight permanently, that will be an absolute travesty. And to be honest with you, looking at the rankings, I don't think you've got too many other options. I mean, underneath Jose Aldo, you've got Frank Edgar, who they, they just fought at UFC 200. So that's, that, that fight's out of the way. And then you've got Ricardo Lamas, Cub Swanson. Nope, not for me. You've got Anthony Pettis now. He just moved to featherweight, um, got a really good win over Charles Oliveira. But that's just one win. I think, you know, given the fact that he, is coming, he was coming off a few losses himself, he needs a good couple of wins and get used to his weight class before he can start to kind of really put his name forward uh, as, a, as a true title challenger. But uh, in terms of, again, like we talked about before, Simon, in terms of true meritocracy... It's got to be Max Holloway. 
Yeah, totally agree. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Depending on the weight class, we're sort of leaning towards money fight, and then in other weight <laughs> classes, we're leaning towards meritocracy. It's all very hypocritical, but they, <laughs> but you know, the, we're, we're trying to we're trying to offer up what we think might be the best title fight in each weight also, class. Simon, also, some some weight classes don't give you the option of both. Correct. Some only give you the option of meritocracy, or give you the the option of, of uh, quote unquote money money weight fights. So um, you know, and and it's all you know, you know, Simon, like anybody else does. This is a star driven sport. And when certain weight classes have three or four solid stars that you can put as a headline uh, to to you know bring in the pay per view numbers, then you've got some real options. Um, and in some weight classes, like for example flyweight, then you might need to get a little bit creative um, and see if you can move a few fighters around weight classes just to give you know a fighter like Demetrius Johnson um, you know some fresh matchups because he's just been. An absolutely, you know, outstanding champion, and he's probably gonna, you know, in my, in my opinion, he's gonna go on to kind of beat uh, Anderson Silva's record as, you know, the, the fighter in UFC history that had the most title defenses. That's certainly what he's on his way to doing at the moment. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, it is funny. It is funny how uh, we're changing our tune depending on the weight class. Yeah, as I say, we're, we're complete hypocrites, but you know, we're at least we're honest about it. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, you mentioned DJ. I think the only barrier to him um, breaking Anderson Silva's record is whether he runs out of opponents. I think that yeah. literally, I think that is the only barrier to him doing that. Um, for me, he's he, he's the best fighter on the planet right now. Uh, but someone else who um, likes to lay claim to being the best fighter on the planet features in my next match. The Eddie Alvarez championship fight. Uh, you can probably guess who I'm going to put him in with. I think it's the fight everyone's going to try and put him in with. Who would you pick to take on Eddie Alvarez out of that talent-stacked lightweight division, Sandu? All those contenders lining up to face Eddie Alvarez. Who who fights him next? Well, it's got to be you know, number 14 ranked Rashid Magomedov. Sure, <laughs> um, no, I mean, let's be honest. Uh, it's the fight that everybody wants to see. It, it's a fight that's been talked about for quite some time. It's the idea of featherweight champion Conor McGregor stepping up to 155 pounds to attempt to become the very first UFC champion that holds belts in two different weight classes at the same time. Conor McGregor, Eddie Alvarez. There's rumors that we're literally hours, if not days away from the fight being announced to headline the New York card, and in my opinion, if that isn't the fight that headlines the Madison Square Garden uh, card for the UFC, um, then it's just not good enough for Madison Square Garden. I'm sorry. I mean, the best. I mean, if you're going to go to MSG with a debut card, you've got to put on the absolute best fight you can put on. You know, with all the, all the weight classes available to you and all the the entire roster, the fight that's got the most fan demand and the and and the one that the entire community wants to see right now. They just want to see it for a few different reasons. Number one, they want to see if McGregor can actually do it. Number two, they want to see how Eddie Alvarez can, you know, handle himself in the, the, the most highest pressure of scenarios, you know. And we've seen in the past Aldo couldn't handle the the, the pressure um, when it comes to a McGregor fight. But more more than anything, I think we all just want to put this to bed. I think because McGregor's been chasing this idea of becoming a two weight champion for so long to the detriment of the featherweight division where the UFC had to create an interim championship while McGregor went away and obviously tried to get that championship off Rafael de Sanchez, which in then turn 
create this bizarre rivalry of 2016 against Nate Diaz. I think everybody is, you know, wants to see this attempt out of the way. If he wins, great. Then we can see what he wants to do next. But if he loses, fine. At least we can then put the attention and the focus back on the on the featherweight division. But yeah, it's got to be Eddie Alvarez, Conor McGregor, Simon. Is there anyone else really as an option? No, no. Um, when it comes to the lightweight world title, it has to be Conor McGregor. Um, get the fight done, as you say, and then you know we everything can return to normality after that. You know, the featherweight division can hopefully go back to having a proper undisputed champion with with a belt that he's going to defend um, and uh, it'd be interesting to see what would happen if Conor McGregor lost against Didi Alvarez that would be very interesting because I don't think he's got any real intention of going back to 145 but if he loses the lightweight title fight then uh, he really does find himself uh, find himself in a bit of a in a bit of a spot and he then he'll then have to make a serious decision about his career so um Really looking forward to it. I think, it's, you know, all common sense suggests that that is going to be the main event in Madison Square Garden. And as you as you say, you know, they want Connor on that Madison Square Garden card. He is the biggest name in the sport right now, and uh, they, you know, they want to pack Madison Square Garden and put on a real a real super fight. And what better than a fight where someone can go for UFC history and become the first guy to hold two belts? Uh, simultaneously uh, in in the UFC. Um, of course, that's betting without Eddie Alvarez, of course, who did an incredible job to take apart uh, Rafael dos Anjos um, in uh, in in uh, in Las Vegas earlier earlier this year. Amazing performance from him. So, is he? You know, can he repeat the trick and do the same thing to Conor, Conor McGregor, or will McGregor go on and become the first ever? Uh, two weight champion simultaneously in the UFC but that's the fight that needs to be made for sure middleweight division because we're jumping the world's weight division because we already know what's happening at world's weight Tyron Woodley is taking on Stephen Wonderboy Thompson we also know what's going to happen in the middleweight division Michael Bisbing is going to fight Dan Henderson so my question is who fights if we assume that whoever wins this fight hangs around to defend their title. If Henderson wins, we understand he's retired. If Bisping wins, he isn't going to retire. So if Bisping wins this fight, who should he fight next, Sandy? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think it's got to be the winner of Rockhold and Jacare. I think prior to this scenario of Bisping coming on a two-weeks notice... And, and beating Rockhold for the title, I think Jacare was widely considered uh, to be the true number one contender anyway. Um, but now that he's matched up with Rockhold, who has beaten him before in Strike Force, it does put an interesting spin on things because if Rockhold wins, brilliant. You've got the rematch with Bisping, you've got the rivalry, or well, actually, now you've got the trilogy fight yeah. um, with Bisping, uh, not the rematch, the trilogy fight, uh, and that's you know, got a, a nice you know storyline to it. Um, and if Jacare wins, then yeah, great. Again, we're talking about merit. This is actually a great example of the money fight versus meritocracy, because I think Jacare is widely considered to be the guy in the middleweight division that deserves a shot that most that hasn't already fought for the title before. And then in Rockhold, you've got someone that's very marketable 
got the rivalry with Bisping, a former champion, has headline and, 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 and main evented UFC events before. Um, and I would consider him to be the larger draw between him and Jacare. Um, so, but if you're going to put a gun to my head, I think the Rockhold trilogy would make more sense than the Jacare fight if Rockhold does beat Jacare. That's my that's my humble opinion. What do you think, Sai? I totally agree with you. I've, I've got written down here the winner of Rockhold versus Jacare. I think, I think as you say, Jacare is probably the most deserving guy in a middleweight division who hasn't fought for the belt yet. Uh, Rockhold is the is the the most intriguing next opponent for Michael Bisbing. If Michael Bisbing can get past Dan Henderson, which is no formality, just ask just ask uh, some of Henderson's past opponents. You know, it's it's uh, unbelievable how that guy is still going and still knocking people out at his age. But he's still incredibly dangerous. Bisbing himself knows that he has to be wary against Dan Henderson. The uh, the fight that will hold the most the most uh, fan interest will undoubtedly be the Rockhold fight. And if Rockhold gets past Jacare, it's a no-brainer. Uh, you have to throw Chris Weidman into the mix as well. It looks like he's going to fight Yoel Romero uh, in New York. And uh, the winner of that fight uh, will obviously be banging a drum for a title shot as well. And if the winner of that fight it turns out to be Yoel Romero, then that might have a little bit of credence because... We've seen Weidman fight for the title before. We haven't seen Romero fight for the title before. So it really depends. It depends on how the UFC want to do this. I mean, for me, Rockhold Jacare is a, is, is, is a higher grade fight than mm. Weidman versus Romero. Just. They're both you know ridiculously high level matchups. But I think Rockhold Jacare is just that little bit higher. Um, and um, I think the winner of that will be the... The uh, the worthy the worthy number one contender for whoever wins that main event at UFC 204. That was middleweight. We now look at the light heavyweight division. If there's a if there's a weight division in the UFC, Sandu, where we need an injection of new blood, then maybe it's the light heavyweight division. I mean, the heavyweight division as well potentially, but you know we've got one or two names working their way up. But at light heavyweight, it seems like we've got. We've got established people at the top of the division and then a little bit of a gap uh, between them and the rest. So I'm, I'm not expecting there to be a huge deviation in, in, in what we suggest here. But Daniel Cormier has got the uh, the 205 title right now. Um, who does he defend against next? Does he hold on and fight John Jones next? Does he fight Anthony Rumble Johnson next? I don't really think there's anybody else uh, in the picture, I would definitely put him in with Rumble Johnson. I'd put him in there as soon as possible. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I think at this stage with John Jones, he's just uh, he's had too many chances, um, and he just keeps letting himself down, letting the fans down, letting the UFC down, letting the sport down. And I think he here's what I do right now. It looks as though Alexander Gustafsson is going to be fighting Little Nogueira. Uh, in Sao Paulo in Brazil this November. Now, now say Gustafsson comes through that fight with flying colours, gets uh, another win under his belt. That would be two back-to-back wins. He's got his mojo back. Here's what I'd do. I'd, I agree with you, Simon. I'd do DC versus Anthony Johnson for the, for the belt. I'd just scrap the whole idea and concept of an interim championship. I don't even know why they've created that for John Jones, but 
at this stage, I, if the guy can't hold on to his UFC championship because he's getting in trouble, let alone an interim championship, what I'd do is I'd have DC and Anthony Johnson in the main event, and then the co-main event, again, if Gustafsson comes through with flying colors against Lunaguerra, I'd put Gustafsson and Jones in the co-main event. Because then what you've got, you've got your main event, and if something should happen to Anthony Johnson, or if something should happen to DC, then you can just bump up John Jones into that main event slot. Because the AJ fight is one that's a fresh matchup and everybody's wanting, been wanting to see. And if you're going to you know, keep that interim championship around the waist of John Jones anyway, then why not uh, let Anthony Johnson fight him uh, while DC is injured? But if Anthony Johnson's the one that's injured, you've got the rematch ready-made. They're already in camp. They're, they're all you know, prepared to fight on the same date. Um, but you know, if all of them you know, stay healthy then you've got DC and you've got Anthony Johnson fighting out for the belt, and then you've got a number one contenders fight between John Jones and Gustafsson, which in itself is one of the, if not the greatest light heavyweight match of all time, and it's a rematch that everyone's been clamoring to see for, for since their first fought three years ago. So so DC, AJ, and Gustafsson, John Jones co-main event, that's my kind of ultimate matchmaking uh, dream scenario. Yeah, that 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 would be perfect, wouldn't it? I think I think the timelines might prevent, uh, might possibly prevent that from happening, just because Gustafsson would probably need to do like a thirty day turnaround in order to in order to make that fight, even if they did it on like December the thirtieth. Um, well, I saw I saw um, Anthony Johnson try and tempt DC for the New York card, and DC tweeted him back saying he wouldn't be ready for New York yeah. because he's injured. So. And and that would be that would be a November card. I, I guess it would come down to how Gustafsson comes through the Nagera fight in November. But yeah. I don't know. Say it was a first round finish and he's unscathed, and they're looking for the DC fight maybe in January, February. Then he's got some time. But yeah, you're right. The timelines could skew that a little bit. That would be the ideal scenario, though. I mean, it always is. It always is when you've got the sort of number one v number two, having number yeah. three v number four on the same fight card just makes total sense it just doesn't always work out sort of logistically but that would definitely be perfect and for my money right now rumble johnson is the number one scariest guy in the ufc and and if if he was fighting daniel cormier tomorrow i think i'd be back in rumble johnson to get the job done this time round. i think he's i just think we i think we're going to see a different anthony rumble johnson when he gets in there with cormier second time round. can't wait to see that fight whenever they make it the smart money suggests it may well be UFC 207, could potentially be uh, the Toronto card on December the 10th, 206. But that might be a little bit early. Um, But yeah, quite possibly Vegas. Uh, But we'll have to wait and see. Uh, And that takes us to the final final weight class, the big boys, the heavyweights. Stipe Miocic has only just defended his title, uh, knocked out Alistair Overeem on home soil in Cleveland. Uh, The place went nuts. Um, and uh, now the question turns to who should he face next? Now, we've got a little bit of breathing room with this because Stipe has said he wants to take a little bit of time away. I think he wants to go on a honeymoon. He's, he recently got married. He hasn't had a chance to go on honeymoon. So he's going to go off on honeymoon. He's going to chill out for a bit uh, and come back fresh and raring to go in 2017. So... If we assume all things are possible in that UFC heavyweight division, and obviously other fights will take place before then, who would be your pick to jump in there with Stipe for his next championship defence, Sandu? Well, we've got 
the possibility of a doom fighting Velasquez, right? So theoretically, again, looking at meritocracy, you've got two former champions battling it out while Stipe takes a bit of a rest. So the winner of that would obviously get a title shot next. The thing with Cain Velasquez is, and, and Cain Velasquez is my pick here, the only problem I've had with him in the past is his consistency, his ability to fight regularly. He's very injury prone. He's the sick note of the UFC heavyweight division. And he has said recently that he's changed a lot in his camp. He's sparring a lot less. He's getting you know regular massages and he's just doing things to look after his body a lot more And as he gets that little bit older. I mean, if he can prove to compete against Vadum before the end of this year, that'll be two fights this year. Uh, and, and mate, if he can perform against Vadum like he did against Travis Brown at UFC 200, if he can then also you know enact revenge on Vadum in that type of fashion, there's just no question that Velasquez would be um, the right choice um, for the for the for the for the fight. Um, in terms of, it's very interesting this one because in terms of markets, of, of course. You've got Velasquez with that, you know, that Mexican background, and Mexico is obviously a, in a really important market for the UFC. But you know, Vadum is a big star and a big draw in Brazil too. So if if Vadum got that got that chance, you know, and and he was able to get revenge on on Stipe Miocic and, and get his belt back, then again you've got somebody you can you know bring back to the Brazilian market. So it's a bit of a tough one. But if I'm gonna again put my gun to my head and I had to pick between the two, I'd pick Velasquez. Yeah, I think if Kane if Kane can uh, get past Fabricio uh, second time around, then I think there's 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 little argument. Um, if Fabricio beats Kane and looks no better than he did against against uh, Travis Brown, I'd probably look elsewhere. Um, and and sort of the X factor, my sort of super sub coming off the bench, would be Junior dos Santos. Um, mm. I think stylistically, JDS versus Stipe, um, you know, it's it, it's a fight that I'd love to see. I'd love to see again. You know, we've it's 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 a fantastic matchup, and uh, I think stylistically, I think it would it would make for a brilliant title fight. Um, and Stipe has shown himself to be a little bit susceptible against strikers in the past. That's where he's had uh, that's where he's had the most the most trouble. Um, Stipe um, obviously lost to Junior Dos Santos um, by unanimous decision back in 2014. Uh, I actually thought Miocic won that fight. Um, I, if, if, if I remember rightly, I think I think I had Miocic winning that fight. But it was it, it was a close fight, even though it was rated a, scored as a unanimous decision. Um, but uh, I think stylistically, I think that would be a great fight. You don't see too many heavyweight fights going five rounds and and being brilliant. But that was definitely one of them. Um, and uh, that's a fight I would love to see again. If Cain Velasquez gets the job done against Fabricio, I think he's the natural next guy. But maybe the next guy after that would be JDS. Because um, I'd like to see him right back up there again fighting for championship gold once more. So I still think he's one of the very best heavyweights in the world. But I think in terms of pure quality, Stipe versus Kane is the one to make. That's our list. Um, if anyone has got any uh, any wildly differing picks uh, for any of those, are there any real sort of uh, left field out there suggestions for title fights that maybe not straight away, but fights that you'd certainly love to see maybe further down the line in 2017? 
chuck us a tweet and let us know. Um, let us know what, what title fights you'd like to see in 2017. Uh, we're on Twitter at the Brit Pack MMA. Send us a tweet. Let us know. Let us know what you think uh, of our picks and let us know what 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 you would do with some of these uh, some of these UFC world champions. That moves us on, Sandu, to uh, our Q and A. We're just talking about Twitter. Uh, people have been sending us questions again this week. Absolutely, and once again, thank you to everyone um, that jumps on the the Twitter machine uh, and get, hits up myself, Simon, and the official Brit Pack handle, which is the Brit Pack MMA, with your questions. Again, feel free to hit us up throughout the week. Uh, myself and Simon usually send out a reminder uh, the morning of the day we're going to record the podcast. Uh, but yeah, really do appreciate everyone reaching out. It helps us create an entire segment for the show, so it's much appreciated. So. Um, the first question comes in from RG, Simon, and, and RG says, what do you make of Cyborg at £140? Does it foreshadow a £145 women's division? Catch weight with Ronda Rousey? What do you think? Now, Chris Cyborg is fighting Nina Landsberg uh, this upcoming weekend in Brasilia, Brazil. Uh, that's the headline for the fight night card there uh, in Brazil. Um, I think Simon Yumi have spoken about this uh, a few episodes ago. We both don't like the idea of Cyborg having to cut down to 140 pounds, especially in the current climate of weight cutting being so kind of uh, detrimental to a, a fighter's health. And there was definitely, uh, you know, some squeamish and uh, hard to watch scenes in the trailer for an upcoming, uh, I think it's a documentary on, on Cyborg, where it kind of essentially shows her cutting weight uh, prior to her UFC 198 fight. Um so in regards to it foreshadowing a 145-pound division, I really hope so. And we've spoken about this as well, Simon. We, I think you and me both in agreement. We, we would love to see it. But time and time and again, I keep seeing uh, quotes from uh, UFC President Dana White essentially nixing it, saying it will be a good few years uh, before we see that happen. Um, I just my, my mind boggles. I'm just like, well, look, if you're going to use her, why make it up to 140? Why not just let her fight at 145 pounds, which is her, you know, healthiest weight class? Maybe she can fight for Invicta once, once, twice a year, and defend the championship on Fight Pass, and then you can bring her up in a pay-per-view slot or or a, or a fight night card in Brazil, and maybe fight one of the, uh, you, you know, you know, UFC's bantamweight fighters um, that are happy to jump up to 145 pounds. What do you think, Sai? Yeah, I don't. I... It kind of annoys me. Um... Because, you know, we're dealing with we're dealing with you know people's health, and uh, you know, which sounds kind of weird. This is a combat sport where people go in there and beat seven shades out of each other. But the you know, obviously, we want it to be done under the most you know the uh, the safest uh, conditions possible. And and cyborg cutting to one hundred and forty pounds is just it's 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 just cruel. It shouldn't, it, you know, she, she shouldn't be doing it. I mean, obviously she, you know, she's, she's complicit in this. She's signing the contract and is agreeing to do it. But I think she needs people around her who, who are prepared to tell her, no, you no, you're not doing this. You know, you shouldn't do this because I mean, just, just before we went on air, um, Cyborg was on, was on uh, the MMA hour with Ariel Helwani. And she said that, as she was talking to him, she would weigh 165 pounds four days out oh from God. the weigh-in. Uh, and uh, uh, she was told to start taking birth control pills by uh, by George Lockhart um, in order to help her drop weight. 
Um, and uh, she was um, she's she's 165 pounds. She's got to lose 24 pounds in four days. Um, and we've already seen we've already seen how how hard the weight cut is for her. And it sounds as if this one's going to be even worse. So, and I, I, I tweeted earlier saying that it worries me a lot and all the rest of it. And you know there are you know there have been instances of UFC fighters who've who've gone in at short notice and cut ridiculous amounts of weight. Uh, Paul Redman for his UFC debut, Redza, um, he, he actually tweeted me and said he cut thirty three pounds in twelve days for a division he'd never fought in before, and it would have been wow. thirty six if he'd have actually made weight because he didn't make weight. So, um, and, and that, that was nuts. And, and, you know, I tweeted him back and told him he was a crazy man and, and 33 pounds in 12 days is, is ridiculous. Uh, cyborgs having to lose 24 pounds in four days, um, which just, uh, is just unbelievable. And, and we already know that she's tight at the weight, uh, you know, you know, ridiculously tight at 140 pounds. Lena Landsberg is a 45er. Why couldn't I have made this fight at 45? Um, that's what I don't understand. And and it really is, you know, it's, it's like they're, they're, they're trying to force uh, Cyborg into some sort of position whereby they can make these money fights um, with the likes of Holly Holm or maybe even Ronda Rousey or someone like this. But, but yeah, it's, you know, the inescapable truth, Sandu, is she's too big. She's just too, mm. you know, she's just... She she isn't a hundred and thirty five pound athlete. Never never will be. And really, she shouldn't be a hundred and forty pound athlete. If we you know if 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 we saw fighters completely ruining themselves in the way that we saw Cyborg ruining herself to reach hundred and forty, we'd be screaming at them to move up in weight. The problem Cyborg has is she doesn't have a home when it comes to weight classes in the UFC. And while there, you know, the UFC has said there's no plans to add any new weight divisions right now. There's been talk of 145. There's been talk of 125. Um, that doesn't mean that they can't put fights on at her natural weight class. You know, Lena Landsberg can fight and does fight at 145 pounds. Cyborg fights at 145 pounds. To not have the fight at 145 pounds is is just beyond my comprehension. I don't get it, um, especially when we know. The uh, the weight cutting issues that she's had in the past. It's dangerous, you know. That that is the long and short of it. This isn't someone who who isn't prepared to lose the weight. This is someone who is physically giving themselves an awful lot of trauma to even get close to losing that much weight. Um, so I, it, yeah, I just don't know what to say. I honestly don't know what to say. She shouldn't fight below 145 pounds, and she needs a manager. She needs a she needs a, a boyfriend or fiance. I, th- I think she's got a boyfriend um, who I believe is actually a fighter. I think it's Ray Elb. I think I think at least was um, her boyfriend. Uh, so so he knows all about cutting weight for fights. Um, so it needs someone to basically say this is not good for you. This is not good for you, um, and that's what needs to happen. You know, it's it's so difficult and. You know, I just, I just hope that, I just hope that nothing bad happens, because you know we don't, we don't want to see that in our sport, you know, um, and we don't want that to happen to anybody. No, you're absolutely right, Simon, and I, and I suppose the only kind of like, I suppose, saving grace maybe on this occasion is compared to her last fight, 
which was uh, 140 pounds at UFC 198. The early weigh-ins weren't in effect then. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Zion, you can correct me if I'm wrong, UFC 199 was the first event that that came into effect uh, because it was held in California. That's kind of been leading the early weigh-ins anyway. And essentially, after that, it has become the norm. So I suppose this week, obviously, you know, I guess we're all going to be paying very close attention to what she looks like um, at the actual weigh-ins on, on Friday morning. But at least it'll give her an extra, I don't know, 8, 9, 10, 12 hours um, to hydrate. Uh, so she gets a full day and a half um, as opposed to just 24 hours um, in the previous setup. But but it's kind of weird. I mean, I, I just feel like maybe the UFC are doing this so that somewhere down the road they can say, oh, well, we've got the, the Invicta 145 champion and we've got the Misha Tates of the world or the Ronda Rousey or the Holly Homer who are former or our current UFC 135-pound champion. Here, we're going to meet in the middle. It's a super fight, and we're going to do it at 140, you know? Um, and, and it might be easier for the for, for the woman coming up in weight, like your Ronda Rousey's and your Misha Tate's or your Holly Holm, but it's just putting so much stress on, uh, on Cyborg's body just to drop the extra five pounds or the extra four pounds. I guess you're probably weighing out 141, which will make it uh, legal and official. Um, but hearing stuff like taking, you know, birth control pills and just putting, you know, stuff like that in your body to try and make the weight, it's 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 heartbreaking to hear um, that a this has been put on her uh, and the the fact that she's maybe forced into a position where she just has to accept the situation because this is the way she makes her living, Simon. Um, and if this is the best way for her to make the most money possible in the short window of of being a fighter, uh, it's sad, but. You know, it is what it is, and it's just unfortunate, really unfortunate. But I guess it, it takes members of the media like us, it'll take fans and, and hopefully fellow fighters to speak about it as often as, and consistently as possible um, so that perhaps it becomes a big enough issue where perhaps the UFC um, rethink things moving forward when it comes to cyborgs fights. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's, it's it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. And the most important thing is 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 that, when she competes, she competes healthy, and you know, irrespective of the, uh, you know, whatever the scales weigh on on, on weighing day, that's the number one important thing. And uh, if the UFC want to get the best out of her as well, it may, it's in their best interest as well. So that's what I would do. I would just let her fight at her proper weight class and find appropriately sized opponents to fight against. That that's yeah. that's what I would do anyway. Absolutely right. So moving on, Stuart Tuckwell tweets in and says. What fighters or fights would you like to see on the Belfast card? Um, so that's a good question. Thanks, Stuart. I'll tell you what, Simon. The one fighter that comes to mind straight away when I heard about the Belfast card isn't actually a fighter on the current UFC roster. It's a guy that got cut um, earlier this year, and his name's Norman Park. Um, the, the lad is from Northern Ireland. Um, I'm sure he's just kicking himself that he's not currently in the UFC when he heard that they're going to Belfast. Now, he is fighting on the ACB card um, up at the SSE Hydro in Glasgow, which you're going to be in attendance for, Simon, in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah. Do you think it's outside the realm of possibility that if Norman Park can get a, a good win, get back in the win column with a Belfast card around the corner, perhaps can um, get some line of communication going with the UFC to get back on that card? Do you think that's feasible? I think... I think timelines will be the biggest barrier to that happening. Um, 
I think it would be a, a crying shame if he wasn't on the card, just because he's been such an ambassador for for, for Northern Irish mixed martial arts and has been really the ploughing a lone furrow, really, when it comes to fighting at the very, very highest level. And, uh, you know, now they've got this big show coming. It would seem like the, you know, the obvious opportunity to give him give him a good high-profile fight. But it's just such a shame that they uh, they cut him a matter of weeks before they announced the event. So it was it was it's unfortunate for Norman, and I know I know he's going to be fighting at, at ACB, and you know I'm sure they'll, I'm sure they'll look after him at ACB. But you can't help but think he'd love to be fighting over there at, um, in, in in Belfast in November. But I have a feeling that I have a feeling that it, you know just just timelines and. You know, I, I don't necessarily think he's going to go in there and claim a quick, quick fire first round win. Uh, Norman tends to get involved in in three round wars with people. So um, unless he can go in there and, and do something we haven't seen from him in a while, and that's that's polish someone off in super quick time, you would assume that he'll be, he'll, you know, he's going to have a fair few lumps and bumps after that after that fight in Glasgow. So. Um, I think that, as much as anything, will be a barrier to him competing in Northern Ireland, which would be a big shame. But uh, I have a feeling that just you know the the logistics of it may just you know won't work out in his favour, which which would be a shame. Lewis tweets in and says, "Is Mickey Gall actually capable of beating Super Sage, or is it wishful thinking as we want to see a great fight?" So, for those of you that perhaps haven't uh, been keeping up. Uh, with the news as of late. Following his win against CM Punk at UFC 203, Mickey Gall called out Super Sage Northcutt. It was the brilliant, it was the right move to make. It was a, a brilliant and uh, a post-fight interview with Joe Rogan. Um, we've got two guys here who essentially have used the, the, the new kind of online digital web series called Looking for a Fight by the UFC as a platform, as a launch pad for their careers. Um, and, and it's a fight that I hope gets made. Is Mickey Gall capable of beating Super Sage? I think he is, especially if the fight takes place at Mickey Gall's weight class, which is 170 pounds. Now, Sage Northcutt typically fights at 155, but has fought at welterweight in the past. If he can, if they make this fight at welterweight, I think given what we've seen, although it being um, quite limited of Mickey Gall, I think the fact that he's got an excellent ground game, I think that's where Sage Northcutt, we've seen him get into trouble in the past. Uh, and I, I, I can see this fight being very competitive, um, and I can see Mickey Gall giving him uh, a lot of trouble on the ground. And is he capable of beating him? Which is what the question asks. I think he, he is capable of beating him. Simon, what do you think? I think he, can, I think he's capable of beating him. I think, I think it is. I think we said it on uh, on last week's show. I think it is the perfect matchup, probably for both guys. To be honest with you, I think Sage was sort of thrown into the deep end very quickly and um, found himself found himself up against a bigger, stronger, more experienced guy in Brian Barberina and lost. Um, and uh, I would like... I'd, he needed to be sort of brought back down a little bit and fight someone with maybe a little bit less experience. And and uh, I do think Sage will probably be more comfortable fighting at 170 anyway, so I don't think the fact that it's at 170 would be, uh, would be a major detriment to him. I think he'd probably prefer that. Um, but I think... Could Mickey Gall beat him? Yeah, and I'll tell you why Mickey Gall could beat him because Mickey Gall, I think, has got a much much better grappling game than Sage has got. Um, 
I think Sage's Sage's skill set lies in in striking. He's got very good sort of karate based striking. Uh, that's where he has probably the best chance of success. Uh, Mickey's got a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu brown belt, um, and I think if he gets Sage to the mat, and we've seen Sage with his back on the canvas in the past, he hasn't looked too clever. Um, and I think uh, I think I think Mickey Gall could have some joy down there. I think if he can get Sage to the mat. Uh, and, and, and get to work, I think he could could submit him. Uh, but we know Sage is quite a dangerous dangerous striker. So it's going to be all... I think the key will be in the transition. I think whoever can whoever can dictate where the fight takes place will be the person who eventually wins the fight. But I think it's a competitive fight. I think it's an exciting fight. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. Surely they have to make it. They, you know, this it's a fight that's crying out to be made. It makes It makes all the sense in the world. Um, and whether they do it in New York, whether they do it at um, in, in in Las Vegas in December, I think it needs to be made. And uh, yeah, a better fight pass featured prelim you couldn't wish to make. So uh, I think that's absolute no brainer. Make the fight. And I think it's a, I think it's if I was betting on the fight, I'd probably lean towards Mickey Gold. I've got to be honest with you. I think uh, I think he just has a few more ways to win the fight than than, than Sage does. Vinny Massaro tweets in and says, "Greatest American fighter, Hendo or Couture?" Now he's given us a specific option there, Simon. Obviously, if you wanted to throw other American fighters into the mix, the obvious <coughs> one that comes to mind is John Jones. But if you're going to pick between Dan Henderson and Randy Couture, who are you picking there, Simon? Dan Henderson. I'm picking Dan Henderson. He's uh, he's done it in multiple weight classes, as has Randy Couture. But the difference between Randy Couture and Dan Henderson is that Henderson has excelled on on both sides of the uh, the MMA divide, if you like. He was over there in Japan and won two world championships uh, in Pride, um, and you know to be able to do that against some of those guys over there is is ridiculous. And that was when Pride was probably you know the gold the gold standard of the sport back then. Uh, and he came over to the UFC. I know he's never won UFC championship gold, but he's uh, he's been he's been up there and he's been campaigning for a ridiculously long amount of time. He's still he's still uh, a ranked contender in the middleweight division, and he's obviously going to fight for the world title in Manchester at two hundred four. But I think I think his body of work stands up uh, against Randy Couture's. I think Randy. Randy was a little bit more sporadic in, in, in terms of when, when he fought and where he fought. Whereas I think Hendo's been a lot more consistent and uh I would I would I would say that his his C V uh sits a little bit higher than Randy's in, in, in the overall list, I would say. I completely agree with everything you say, Simon, but I have to go with Couture here because I think winning UFC championship belts just mean that little bit more when it comes to you know accolades and when you're looking at obviously Henderson 100% he did it in strike force he did it in pride he beat Fedor um you know he's done it all and you know what who knows maybe in a few weeks time Simon if he beats Michael Bisping for the championship belt then the conversation completely changed then without a shadow of a doubt if you're going to pick between the two in terms of the greatest American MMA fighter of all time then 100% I'd say Dan Henderson without even thinking about it twice um, but for, for me personally, um, given the, the time that he fought in, the, the, the different weight classes, uh, the, the age he fought at, 
Um, I know that it wasn't too long ago, but you know, I think even just um, in 2016, there's so much more available to fighters to look after themselves and recuperate, and you know, you, maybe you can get some more miles out of the out of the engine than you than you could have perhaps maybe five, six, seven, eight years ago. Um, so I'm going to lean the other way a little bit. I'm going to go for Couture on that one. Okay, that's um, interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, the final question comes in from George, who says, "Do you think Bisping will train his usual way or try to reproduce his camp before Rockhold? And does it matter?" So, just to kind of paint the picture here a little bit, obviously, uh, the Rockhold fight at UFC 199 it came on. I think it was about three weeks' notice, and at the time, Michael Bisping was up in Toronto, I believe, um, uh, shooting a movie. Um, the the triple X um, movie the, the the is it a sequel is it a, a relaunch of the of the franchise I'm not too sure but anyway that's beside the point he was up in Toronto got the call and literally had to put together a short two two and a half week camp um, uh, before the fight and given that he actually said in his uh, pre fight and post fight interviews that he felt a lot better his body hadn't been through the wear and tear of a eight ten twelve week camp. Um, and he felt, and he said that he basically felt a lot fresher in the fight, and he felt as though um, he everything was just firing on all cylinders, and he was at his uh, absolute maximum uh, potential capacity in terms of physical uh, peakness uh, because of the uh, because of how fresh he felt. Whereas in the past, he said that he'd usually go into fights um, or get into fight week, you know, maybe at seventy or eighty percent because he'd already been through you know, a war of a camp and had a few knocks and a few niggly injuries that he'd been carrying with him. So it's interesting to see what he does this time. I mean, he's been doing a few media tours. He has been you know, filming some more movies and um, other bits and pieces during what would normally be considered a, a standard camp. Um, but I do remember him saying after the Rockhold win, when he won the championship, that he was going to change things around. Uh, and, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, looking at a social media feed, I think he may have just started camp um, maybe a few weeks ago. I know I know he was in the UK a few weeks ago, and he just got back to LA or the, the California area uh, in the last four or five days. So, um, so yeah. So I think I think the shorter camp uh, might be the way forward for Bisping. Um, does it matter? Well. I think clearly it would matter if Bisping won a championship off the back of a three-week camp and he said that that was the key uh, to victory for him in terms of how his body felt. But absolutely, maybe that's the best thing for a guy in his late 30s to be doing is having shorter camps, put less stress on the body just to make sure that when it comes to the, the night of the fight, he's able to fire on all cylinders. What do you think, Sai? I think there's a balance to be struck. I think obviously the way he came in for that rock hold fight was a bit of a, a bit of a one-off situation, a bit of an anomaly. And I think probably doing that again as the champion would be a little bit a little bit silly but having said that what he has learned from that experience and I've spoken to him about it is uh he does he does overtrain he does overtrain and he he completely admits that so he may well have a slightly shorter training camp than usual rather than 12 weeks he might knock it down to 8 weeks or 6 weeks but he's still going to give it a solid training camp. He's not just going to come in with like a week and a half, two weeks, like he did for for uh, for that Luke Rockhold fight. Um, so I think I think there's a balance to be struck there, and it's all about because you want to be at your best. It's all about peaking. Um, and if you look at you look at uh, British sport and you look at the British uh, Olympic cycling team, 
they're a great example of peaking. Um, some of those guys didn't win the world championships. Um, and, you know, they were going into the Olympic Games and the Americans had won the world title in one event or the Australians or the New Zealanders had won the world title in one event. But when it came to, when it mattered, the Olympic Games, Team GB turned up and absolutely swept the board in the velodrome. And that was because they they tapered their training to a point, they'd got it to such a, such a high standard that they knew that they would be at their optimum on on the uh, the time of the Olympic um, cycling events, and uh, that's that's what it's all about. You know, the Holy Grail is finding that sweet spot. And uh, Michael Bisping went in there, and I think he won that fight performing on adrenaline as much as anything else. Um, but this time, obviously, he's got to be a little bit more calculated. Um, but yeah, going in there at a hundred percent, not beaten up and knackered from overtraining, but just being sharp enough, fit enough. Uh, and fresh, that's what you need to be when you get in the octagon. Because uh, if these fights start to string out, you'll get found out really quick. Uh, Bisbee's cardio has always been on point. Uh, and we haven't seen him fade too often in fights, even though he says he overtrains. So um, maybe if he just knocks a week or three off his training camp, we might see an even fresher, even faster, even more explosive Michael Bisbee at UFC 204. But um, I wouldn't expect him to come in at anything less than uh, than 100% because he always does. Absolutely. And that wraps it up for us uh, this week, Sai, in the Q&A segment. So once again, thank you to everyone for tweeting in. Do appreciate it. Like I said before, it actually helps me and Simon create another segment for the show. So much appreciated. And uh, by all means, do tweet us throughout the week. If anything pops up in your mind, uh, something that you want me and Simon to discuss, whether it's UFC, better tour, uh, local MMA here in the UK, get us on Twitter, let us know what it is that you want us to talk about or, or ask us, and we'll make sure that we address it on next week's show. Great stuff. You can listen to us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Acast, and on SoundCloud. The SoundCloud address is soundcloud.com slash thebritpack. It's acast.com slash thebritpack. And uh, obviously search for us on iTunes and Stitcher, uh, we are the Brit Pack. So nice and easy. Uh, give us a search. If you're on iTunes, please do um, give us a rating, give us a review if you're enjoying what you're listening to. And as Sandy says, any suggestions for the show, please do uh, ping us a tweet during the week and let us know. Um, if we didn't get to ask your questions out this week, we apologise. We will do our best to get as many as we can in each week. Um, and uh, I think the question section is fast becoming the... Uh, the most popular section of the show. So get your questions in nice and early next week and uh, Sandu will compile a master list and uh, no doubt we'll be be back again next Monday to answer your questions and talk about the aftermath of UFC Fight Night in Brasilia and uh, we start to start the build-up towards UFC 204 as the excitement starts to build ahead of Michael Bisming's homecoming with the UFC middleweight title as he looks to take on Dan Henderson. That's all we've got for you this week on episode 9 of the Brit Pack. Thank you so much for listening and uh, enjoy the fights next weekend and we'll speak to you next week. 